Good morning. Welcome to The Rock this 4th of July. Are you planning a big weekend? Anybody going to fire up a barbecue or anything? Some celebration, I hope, I hope, I hope. Get some family and friends together. This is a great weekend to celebrate because, uh, as that video showed us, we have a lot to be thankful for this 4th of July. There are not many nations in the world that can claim they were founded to provide a place for people to know and worship God. Not many nations were founded on the scriptures. It's an enormous heritage we have. Uh, the scriptures tell us that righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. We started with a great foundation. Maybe this weekend we could pray that uh, that heritage would be continued strongly. It would continue to be a nation that honors God and continue to be a nation that uh, enjoys the blessing of God in the years to come. But if you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me in them to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor John is away this weekend officiating at a wedding. So this morning you get the B team. I'm happy to, uh, to help him out. We're going to be looking not at uh, the book of Revelation, but we are going to be looking instead at a portion of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. I don't know about you, but there are days when I um, act like a news junkie. You ever do that? When the day's a bit slower, I'm at my desk, I'll hit the, uh, the news, New York Times or CNN, and I'll hit that again and again and again to see what in the world's going on in the world. Normally it's boring. Actually, more often it's bad news, so you kind of click over that pretty quick. Uh, but sometimes... There is a story that comes up on the web page that really captures my attention. One happened about a month ago. I don't know if you noticed it. It featured a man named uh, Jobert Brule. He's a hockey player. Played for the Edmonton Place for the Edmonton Oilers. Well, if you follow hockey at all, you know the Oilers did not do well this year, so he had got off early. Didn't have to worry about those uh, inconvenient things like the playoffs. And uh, so he started his vacation a bit early, and he went to Vancouver area, Vancouver, Canada, where he was uh, with his girlfriend, and one day they were out driving in their car. And because it's Vancouver, and the weathers want to do that, suddenly the heavens opened up, and it just poured rain. I mean, it was just coming down in buckets. And they're out driving somewhere, and, and uh, his girlfriend's driving, and uh, Bear looks out the window, and he sees someone and says, my goodness, that sure looks like... Nah, it couldn't be. But it sure looked like. He says to his girlfriend, turn the car around, turn the car around. So they turn it around and head back. And sure enough, guess who's standing the side of the road in the pouring rain? Did you see that story? It was Bono. It was Bono. You know, like you too? Bono, the front man, you know, one of the, the greatest musicians of our day. The, uh, Bono, the U2. Uh, U2 has sold, what, over 150 million records? They've, they've received 22 Grammys. 22 Grammys, more than, than any other band. 
Bono himself is, is pretty impressive. The guy's been knighted by Queen Elizabeth. He's man of the year for Time magazine. He's a, he started Product Red in order to help uh, people in need across the world, especially in Africa. He is, uh, he's an intelligent guy. He writes for the New York Times op-ed pieces regularly. The guy, is, the guy is amazing. He's been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And you look at that and you say, I mean, I got a crazy mind. I, I look at that and I say, so you're this hockey player. And you pull over the side of the road and suddenly Bono's in the back seat. What do you say to the guy? I mean, you got 10 minutes from there to get to the, back, take him back to his hotel. He got stuck in the rain, walking, you picked him up, you're giving him a ride back, you got 10 minutes, you weren't planning on it, 10 minutes to talk to Bono. What are you going to say? Uh, duh, lovely weather. Uh, no, actually, it's raining. No, uh, uh, I love vertigo. Uh, can I get tickets? Uh, you know, I'm, and he did, by the way, he got tickets. Um, I, I, I'm afraid when you're suddenly in the presence of someone who you are in awe of, I get tongue-tied. Does that happen to you? I mean, what do you, what do you say to those kind of people? I wonder about the guy who, uh, um, in an auction, won the right to have lunch with Warren Buffett. He paid $2.6 million for lunch. I sure hope it was good steak. $2.6 million with Warren Buffett. I mean, Warren Buffett. I mean, that, isn't that kind of intimidating to have lunch with Warren Buffett? You know who Warren Buffett is? The Oracle of Omaha. He's the head of Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, arguably the greatest financial mind, certainly of our day, perhaps of uh, any day. Um, one of the richest men in the world, a tremendous philanthropist, uh, a man who excelled in life as well as in business. You don't often see that in, uh, in business world. An incredibly uh, impressive man. You were sitting down for lunch, and what are you going to ask? The only thing you can't ask is, what should I buy? Uh, what should I invest in? That apparently was off the table. 2.6 million, you can't ask that question. That's exclusively Berkshire Hathaway's domain. But, but what would you say? I get intimidated when I'm around people who are that smart, that well-known. I mean, I'm just me. I mean, these guys are so impressive. I, I get tongue-tied. I don't know what to say. Or what if you go back in history? What if you could have uh, 10 minutes with anyone in history? 10 minutes, and Winston Churchill is there. What are you going to say to Winston Churchill? Uh, great speeches. Um, what, he changed, he saved democracy. He's one of the greatest statesmen of all time. What are you going to say to um, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln? I read a book a couple of summers ago, Lincoln on Leadership. You can find it on Amazon, I'm sure. Great book. Not only did it say a lot about leadership, but a lot about Lincoln, and I was impressed with the man named Abraham Lincoln. Um, you get to talk to him 10 minutes. 10 minutes on the way to the hotel, in the car. Lincoln's in your back seat. What are you going to say? I get tongue-tied. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to come across like an idiot. I don't know what to say. How can I take advantage of this? What is appropriate to say? What is in my best interests? How should I organize and even begin that conversation with someone that great? But my better, bigger problem is not what do I say in the presence of uh, uh, Bono or Winston Churchill, because that's not likely to happen. i got a bigger problem every day when I pray and begin to talk to God. Because 
as impressive as these individuals were that I've mentioned, they're still people, right? What do we say? They're just ordinary people. They still put their pants on one leg at a time. But, but God is not like that. God doesn't put on pants. God is, is completely different. He is perfect and I am imperfect. He is holy and I am sinful. He is, he, he is the example and, and I am not. What do you say when you're in the presence of deity? How do you talk to Him? When you come in prayer and you knock on heaven's door, God invites you to come in prayer and He will open the door and He wants to have a conversation with you. So when He says, yes, what do you say to Him? How do you pray? So often when we pray, I think we, we stammer and uh, we insult Him with the paucity of our prayers. We haven't thought about what we're going to say. We just kind of blurt out what's ever on our mind. But when you knock on heaven's door and God answers, and you have an audience not just with the person of this world, but with the Lord of the universe, how do you speak to him? To answer that question, I can't think of any better place to turn than Matthew chapter 6. Because Jesus tells us how to pray, how to speak to God. And I, I don't know about you, but I pay attention to what Jesus says because, uh, well, he's my hero. Um, I think pretty highly of Jesus. And when it comes to prayer, I don't know of anyone who knows how to pray better than Jesus. I mean, he's got the inside track, right? On the one hand, he's God, so he can give you pretty good insight on how to talk to him, because he is God. And, but not only is he fully God, he's also fully human. So he knows what it's like to be a person. He's tempted in every way as we are. He, he gets it. And he, at this point in Matthew chapter 6, he's been living with disciples for a while, so he's used to ordinary sinners like us. He knows our frailties, the temptations, the difficulties that we have, the foibles that are human part of being human. He, he knows all that. So here in Matthew chapter 6, he specifically addresses how to talk to God. So if you do that, you talk to God, this may be of interest to you. Although it's surprising that in one sense that Jesus would even have to give a teaching on how to pray because everybody prays. Every world religion has prayer in it, right? Everyone in the world who is religious prays. I don't care if you're a Hindu or you're Muslim or you're um, whatever you are, every single religion prays. And even if you claim you're an atheist, <laughs> you still pray. Less often, and maybe only under extreme circumstances, but you pray. What is it they say that um, there are no atheists in foxholes? It may take a lot of pressure to get you to pray, but I guarantee when a mortar falls a couple of feet from you, you'll pray. And I don't think there are many true atheists in the uh, hotel rooms around here. Nor are they in the um, hospital rooms. Because when you come face to face with your mortality, when you have that uh, diagnosis of cancer, it's then that you often pray. 
But the fact is, while everyone prays, everyone gets it wrong. <laughs> Jesus says that. Look at how it begins in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6. He says, look, the problem with everybody's praying, but people aren't praying right. Look, when you pray, this is what not to do. He begins with what not to do, and then he moves on what to do. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? To be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They've received their reward in full. Now, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Look, when you pray, pray to God. Don't pray to impress anybody but God. Don't pray for the people around you. Don't pray using the special words that you know they're going to like. Don't pray to, uh, to put on a show for the other people around you. Don't pray because you know if you go on this subject or say this and you're in a group, people are going to, hmm, ah, oh, ooh, yeah, that's great. You're not, you're not praying for the applause of people. Forget that anyone is there. You're not really praying to God unless you're speaking only to him. In the same way in regular communication, you say, if you're going to talk to me, look me in the eye and just talk to me. Talk to me. So that's what God says. If you're going to pray, speak to me. Prayer has an audience of one, and that's God. And not only that, he says, what else I should not do? He says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Um, do not be like the pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. <laughs> Isn't this often the case? How many times do people in the evangelical world think that they are better prayers because they pray longer? I love the way people put you under guilt. How long do you pray? I spend seven minutes with God. Seven minutes? Oh. I spend 10, 10 minutes, oh, unless I have my hour with God. Only an hour? I pray without ceasing. You ever get into that? How long do we have to pray to be, how long does God want? I mean, one hour, two hours, three hours? When are you going to go to work? What are you going to eat? I mean, how long is enough? And the answer is, look, how long does it, he gives us a model prayer, it's coming, right? It's called the Lord's Prayer. How long does it take to pray that? Two minutes? Look, God doesn't measure prayer, the effectiveness of prayers, with a stopwatch. It's not the longest one wins. This is not a marathon. When you're talking to God, come with purpose, come with intent, come with intensity. I don't think it has to take all day. Pagans do that. They think they can wear God down. He knows what you need already, Jesus says. Come and speak only to him. And when you come, come with meaningful words, not just babbling words. So what does it mean to come with meaningful words? What should the content of our prayers be? If this is how we're not to pray, because now Jesus is going to say, this is how Christians should pray. This is not a prayer for the world. And you can repeat it in the schools if you want. But this is not for the pagan society. This is for believers. This is a disciple's prayer that Jesus crafted for them. And he says to them, when you pray, look, 
when, when you knock on heaven's gate, when you knock on heaven's door and he opens and he says, yes, how, sh what should you say to him? This is a model prayer, a model prayer. It's a prayer that you can pray, just repeat it, wrote repeat. And there's value to that. People have done that for centuries and there's great value. But I don't think that was the primary intent of giving us that prayer. It wasn't just to memorize it and regurgitate it. I think we see in the prayer that Jesus gives a pattern, a model that we are to follow, a structure for prayer that should guide us as we lay out our prayers. So let's look carefully at what Jesus says about how we should pray. How does it begin? How does it continue? Let's look at what Jesus says. He says, he begins by saying, we should talk to the Father about the Father. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Isn't it interesting that his prayers differ from so many prayers that I hear Christians pray. People pray because they're praying about themselves. <laughs> they come with their wish list, their want list. It's like a little kid coming with their Christmas list. This dad, this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I want. He says, that's not how you pray. You come into God's presence, acknowledge who you're talking to. When you come into God's presence, start our Father. That word Father is a significant word. In the Greek, it comes from the word Abba term of intimacy. It's a term of endearment. It's a term that um, a little child would use of their papa. Daddy. Daddy, I'm yours. It's a meaningful word. It's really the heart of the Christian faith. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian because it answers the philosopher Lessing's question, is the universe friendly? Do I live in a place where God is for me or against me? And for the Christian, for the person who is saved by grace, they can come to God in His presence and not doubt God's attitude towards them. You don't doubt whether God is for me or against me. We do not doubt whether He's in a good mood or in a bad mood. Do I have to feel Him out today? No, when you come to Him, you simply come to Him and say, Father, because we know that we are His Son. This was a radical concept in the first century. I know you've probably heard, you know, Abba, Father, got that. I've heard about that in other times. The disciples would not have responded that way. The disciples would have been shocked that Jesus would say that they should talk to God as Father. It was unprecedented. Do you know that this word is a rare word in the Bible, Abba, Father? It's used only 15 times in the Old Testament. But, and only to refer to God as the father of Israel in the corporate sense. He was their father of the nation. But as far as we can tell from Scripture, not once in the Old Testament did any of the great saints bow their head and have the audacity to call God their personal father. 
Not once did Moses call God Father. Not once did Abraham. Not once did Isaiah. Not once did Esther. Not once did Ruth. Not once did anyone in the Old Testament bow their knees and look to heaven and call God their personal Father. They did not do that. But in the New Testament, this word Father is everywhere. 275 times. Something happened with Jesus. Something happened on the cross that changed our relationship with God. And now we enjoy an intimacy that was not possible previously. Now when we come in prayer, we do so with a boldness and an intimacy that is radical. We come to God and say, Father, I know you love me. You know what it's like coming home after a long day? You're done at work. You come in. If you've got kids at home, you open the door. And what is it you're waiting to hear? You're waiting to scream, Daddy, Daddy, Dad, to run to you, tell them about your day. God is your Father. He's longing for you to come talk to Him, to cry out to Him, Father. That's the kind of relationship He has with you. But notice as well, when you come to Him and you pray to Him, our Father. It doesn't end there. It's our Father. What else does it say? In heaven. Notice here that uh, Jesus is saying, I do want you to know that God is loving and is intimate with you. But I also want you to understand that he's also transcendent and immense and great. He is your Father. He's the one that he wants you to curl up in his lap. But he's also the God of all the glory. He is the one in Isaiah chapter 40 who rides in the heavens on a chariot. The earth is his footstool. He is the one who hangs the, the stars in the sky. He is our Father. He is the one who loves us intimately. But he is also the sovereign great Lord of history. And we must not forget that either. We as evangelicals take the intimacy, the fatherhood of God for granted and we emphasize that to the neglect of his immensity. The Jews didn't make that mistake. They knew how wonderful and how terrible God is. They were so careful to hold his name in high revere that they never spoke his divine name. And, and, and they wouldn't even write it fully. They only uh, wrote the vowels. And they left the consonants out. They treated God with such respect that they never spoke it and never read it and in time they forgot how to say his name they emphasized his his greatness to the exclusion of his imminence they, they emphasized his transcendence rather than his closeness and they put an overemphasis on that but but jesus says you need to have both when you pray you're praying to god who loves you but is also the sovereign Lord who reigns upon the throne. And when you come into his presence, you quake and you fear, for he is God Almighty. And both of those have to be kept in tension as you pray. He's God, but he's God in heaven. And when you come recognizing that, you come and you pray about the Father. What does he say? Our Father who art in heaven. What? Hallowed be thy name. When it says name, that's very significant. 
How do you and I choose names for our kids? Well, I know we did it. You get 20,002 baby names. You buy the book and you go through it and you're looking for something and um, something cute. Some people look for a name that rhymes. Some people look for names that uh, you can't make fun of easily and all kinds of criteria that, uh, you know, or great grandpa, someone, you've got to find family in there and name them with that or you go that. But that's not how the, in the Bible names were given. In the Bible, names were given to reveal character. So that um, when a person's character changed, their name would change. You saw that with Peter. Um, Peter got his name changed um, from Simon, which meant pebble, to Peter, which means rock. And uh, Jesus said, because he gave confession that Jesus Christ was Lord, he says, on this rock I will build my church. You have now become the rock. Then not, for this reason I will change your name. No, name revealed character in the Bible. So God in the Bible has many names, doesn't he? He's Jehovah Jireh, he's our provider, he's our healer, he's a fortress, he's, a, he's all kinds of names. Not because God couldn't settle on any one in particular that he liked, but because his character is so vast that all those names are necessary for his character to be properly revealed. But when it says anywhere, the name of God, when that phrase is used, that is an umbrella term that refers to all of his attributes. So when it talks about the name of God, it's talking about the totality of who God is. So it says, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your person, who you are as a complete God. I, it's that that I want to hallow. At which point the obvious question is, what does it mean to hallow? And I don't know, sometimes I go through a whole day and no one uses the word hallow. So what does it mean to hallow? Well, let me give you an example of what it means to hallow. On the, uh, on the screen, you can see something that is uh, worth hallowing. This is a Fabergé egg. Any of you know anything about Fabergé? Fabergé was a um, jeweler, one of the best jewelers in history, kind of like Rembrandt's, one of the greatest painters. Well, Fabergé, one of the greatest jewelers, a Russian. He was commissioned by the Tsar back in the 1800s to create an Easter gift for the Tsar's wife. She liked it. She got more made. And this is the most famous. This one's called the Winter Egg. Um, and it is quite impressive. The Winter Egg... Uh, is made of Siberian rock crystal, and it's adorned with over 4,500 diamonds. This is not an insignificant little piece of trinket. That globe actually opens up, and inside that basket is placed, because it speaks of Easter and the birth and the resurrection of Christ. The basket inside is ordained or is made with flowers that are formed with gold, garnets, and crystals. This thing sold back in 2002 for $9,600,000. Okay, this is valuable. This is delicate. Suppose you got a um, telegraph, a note from... Um, your great-grandma, whoever. 
and said, you had now inherited this. It was yours. This was going to be delivered on Tuesday. Wow. Quite something. So Tuesday arrives. The Brinks truck pulls up. Sixteen guys in white gloves pick this thing up, bring it up to your front door and say, what should we do with it? Because of its value and because of the fact it is so easily damaged, you're not likely to say, ah, put it in the garage. My husband, he'll look after it when he gets home. We'll find a place maybe in the shed. You're not likely to say, here, put it up on the kitchen counter. Here, where the dog likes to jump. Put it up here. No, you're not going to say that. If you got news it's coming, come on, guys, what would your wife make you do to get ready for this? You got a $10 million delicate piece of whatever coming to your house, I know what she's going to make you do. You're going to have to go shopping. You got to buy a cabinet, a special cabinet that's going to show this off. You got to get that, and it's going to be in a prominent place, right? Because if you got a $10 million piece of art, you're going to show that sucker off. And it's going to be humidity controlled, and it's going to be temperature controlled, and it's going to be fastened to the ground to make it earthquake proof, and you're going to get a security system, and you're going to do everything in lighting, and it's going to be, you're going to spend a lot because you want to hallow it, to set it apart, to reverence it because it is so valuable and so delicate. And God says, when you pray, my Father who art in heaven, I will hallow your name. What you would do with a Fabergé egg, you are to do with the name of God. You realize you carry the reputation of Christ. You are the body of Christ. When people see you, they see Christ. Isn't that scary? When your neighbors look at you taking out the trash and how you take out the trash and how you work with your kids and your co-workers see how you work at work and how you play and how you work with your kids on the soccer field, when they look at how you do life, they see Jesus. You are a living representation of God. Oh, Father, hallowed be your name. I, when you pray this, you pray, I will do everything to guard your reputation. Everything to, to preserve your honor in my life and in the world in which I live in. Oh, Father, pray to the Father about the Father. Recognizing who He is and your responsibility as you bear His name. And when you finish praying to the Father about the Father, pray to the Father about your priorities. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. I take it that part of this is a um, prayer of faith. That this kingdom Jesus is speaking about is the millennium kingdom. It's a kingdom that's going to be set up when Jesus comes back in person. And it's going to reign for a thousand years. We look forward to that date. It means that when we pray this prayer, knowing his kingdom will come, we have a different view of history than the rest of the world. It was Henry Ford that said, history is bunk, but we know that's not true. It was the philosopher Nietzsche who said, history is the, the, is the stories of a, uh, of, a, of a sane man scrawled on the walls of an asylum. But we know that's not true. We know that history has meaning, that it is not cyclical as other people believe, but it is, goes in a straight line. It started on one occasion. It started when God said, I will create the earth. 
And it continues until Jesus will come back and end history. And until that, the world is sovereignly under His control. When we pray this, we know that the world is not going to end in a nuclear explosion. We're not going to choke to death on our own exhaust fumes in an over-polluted world. We know that history is His story. It's in God's hands. And we pray, Thy kingdom come. We know that God, You are sovereign in control of history. But notice that it doesn't just talk about what God will do to bring in His kingdom. It says, um, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this, it's not only about what God is doing to bring in prophecy. It's what we do to contribute to His work towards that end. We, our job is to make sure on earth... God's will is perfectly done as it is in heaven. So when you pray this, you're committing to say, in my life, the part of life that I touch in this world, I will make sure it is righteous, it is godly, that everything functions according to Scripture, that your reign, your rule will be perfectly seen, and that will be true. You know, I will have godliness in every part of life that I touch, in my family, in my community, in my work, in my business, in my, my play, in every part of life. I want your kingdom, your reign, your rule, your influence to spread. We're praying here that we would be salt and light in a decaying world, that we would transform the world as much as we possibly can so that it is under His reign and under His rule. That means that we serve Him and are bringing His kingdom in when we are in the office, when we're on the tennis courts, when we're getting our car fixed. It means that we want to be influenced for righteousness in all of those places. We want God's will to be done perfectly there, in government, in every place. This is, this is a transformational prayer. I give myself to you and your kingdom. And notice, it's His kingdom, not mine. Thy kingdom come, not my kingdom come. Do you see that? My priority is not my happiness. My priority is not my agenda. Everybody's talking about having a bucket list, right? I gotta have a bucket list. There's things I want to do before I kick the bucket. I got my agenda. I'm gonna do Grand Canyon. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do all these things. Guess what? Our bucket list as Christians is full of what God wants to do for His kingdom. That's what I want. That is my goal. That is my purpose. You know what the irony is? When He is your goal, He will satisfy all of your needs. When you will get more than you could have ever imagined if you, if you follow His agenda rather than your own. And every day I pray, it's your agenda, your kingdom. I want to be used by you in every area of life. That's what I'm praying. So when you pray, pray to the Father about the Father. Pray to the Father about priorities. Your priorities and His. And then and only then can you pray to the Father about your personal needs. Notice what it says. Give us today our daily bread. Isn't that amazing? The sovereign Lord of the universe wants you to come and ask Him for rent money. 
that he would care that you've got milk in the refrigerator. He would care that you can put gas in the tank. He's not only concerned about fulfilling Middle East prophecy, he's concerned that you've got some clothes to put on. He cares about you. He's a father. He cares about you. The basic needs of life. It's not wrong to come and ask for the basic needs of life to be met. He encourages you to do that. Come and ask and ask. <laughs> um, but notice a couple of things as you come. Notice that it says, um, give us today our daily bread. That's a plural prayer. That means it's a corporate prayer. Which means that as we pray, give us our daily bread, some of us are going to get more than one loaf. Some of us could get two or three, and someone else could get none. If that happens, you got that extra loaf not to get fat, but to help that your brother in need get fed. Our prayers have been answered if we get, I get two and you get none, because together God has met our needs. So when you pray this prayer, give us today, you're saying, God, I'm asking for provision. And it may be directly from me, or it may be that I can be an agent of your grace to someone else, a brother or sister who is in need. And from Acts 2 forward, have you noticed how the Christian church has always been distinguished by its generosity? Christians always share with Christians. We help each other out. Because we know that every good gift comes from the Father above. And you will notice as well that it says, give us today our daily what? Bread. Yeah, not cake. Okay, it doesn't say cake. It says bread. So you don't wake up every morning, God, give me today my daily Bentley. Give me today my private jet. Give me today my favorite mansion. Look, we do not use God. We don't use God to, to accomplish our earthly possessions. Remember that book, Prayer of Jabez, wasn't it? Enlarge my tents, I want to whatever, get bigger and richer. And come on, where'd that come from? Jesus did not own much, right? He's one of the few people we can honestly say did not need a will when he died. His clothes, that's it. Couldn't even separate them up. I mean, he had nothing. That, and he's our ordeal. He's our role model. This is not, give me everything I want. This is a prayer. God, you will give me what I need. Give me what I need for life. I know you will do it. As God looks after the sparrows and sees when they fall, he looks after you and he knows when your job ends. And when there's not enough money. And you can come to him for the basic needs of life. And when you've prayed to the Father about the Father, and you've prayed to the Father about your priorities, and you've prayed to the Father about your needs, then pray to the Father for forgiveness. I find it fascinating how forgiveness follows physical needs. <laughs> I never forget to pray for my food. Never. Every three hours, a rumbly in my tumbly comes and says, you know, I'd like some, like some food now. I find grace an easy prayer to pray. Thanks. Let's dig in. That's easy. Prayer of forgiveness is not so easy. We tend to forget about our need for forgiveness. It's to slip our mind. We can ignore it. We can push it aside. Hunger, we, uh, we can't. But uh, 
of being right with God. And we can, we can push that away. But Jesus says, when we pray on a regular basis, we say, forgive us our debts as we've even forgiven our debtors. I don't care if your conscience is clean. Because I don't know if you realize this, you know, with Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket and all that. Jiminy Cricket is not real. I don't know if you realize that, but Jiminy Cricket makes mistakes. And your conscience is not your guide. The Bible is our guide. And the Holy Spirit gives us insight into our soul to see if we are in right relationship with His Word. And we ask, oh God, give me insight. Search me, oh God, and know if there's any wicked way. Every day we pray that. And every day when there's something that comes to mind, we deal with it. We bring that out to God. We confess it. We get it made right. Because what's necessary, because otherwise sin is a barrier that blocks us from God. And our relationship with God is hindered. If you wait too long, the barrier grows and grows and grows, and your relationship is hampered. You know that if you're married. What if you decided, well, we need to make sure that we're right with each other, so once a year we're going to have a list. I'll keep score of all the things that I need forgiveness from you, and you keep score of everything, and we'll keep score, and every year we'll bring out our long list. You do that, well, it's better than not doing it at all. But you've got a tough year with all that unresolved junk going on in your relationship. No, the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Deal with it right away. Keep short accounts. If there's something wrong, get forgiveness because your relationship will flourish if you eliminate the conflict, if you eliminate the sin. And that's what Jesus is saying. He wants to be our lover, our friend. So deal with it right away. Keep short accounts. Say to him, forgive us our debts. But notice it also says, as we've also forgiven our debtors. You cannot, cannot ask God to forgive you if you will not forgive those who have sinned against you. You cannot. You will not be forgiven by God if you will not forgive a brother or sister in Christ. You will not be forgiven. You will stay in your sins. I don't care what words you use. I don't care how many tears that you bring. You will not be forgiven if you will not forgive. Oh, that's harsh. It doesn't say that. Actually, it does. Look, flip down just a little bit. Verse 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father uh, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sin, your Father will not forgive you your sins. If you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. To be a forgiven person means you must be a forgiving person. You must be a forgiving person. It is an inconceivably wicked thing to know how much God has forgiven us the immensity of our forgiveness and refuse to give the little bit of forgiveness that we need to give to our brother and sister in Christ. How many times have you asked God for forgiveness? Not just when you were saved, but how many times? Daily, regularly. We send in word and deed, what we say and what we don't say, by our motives. We sin a thousand different ways and we keep coming to God. And if we're genuine, His mercy is unending. So why shouldn't ours be unending towards those who sin against us. If God really is our Father, 
then we should be a chip off the old block. Resemble him in our forgiveness. No, we pray to the Father about the Father. We pray, we pray to the Father about our priorities. We pray to the Father about our needs. Pray to the Father about forgiveness. And we pray to the Father about protection. We need spiritual protection. Look, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. <laughs> you know you've got an enemy, right? You know you have an enemy. His name is what? Satan. He wants to destroy you. He wants to ruin your spiritual life. And he's good at it. He's good at it. How long did it take him in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? He slithered in. How long did it take him to get Adam and Eve to fall? How long did they stand? 20 seconds. He's, good. he's gotten better. He's had practice since then. He's so good that outside of Jesus Christ, no one has ever resisted him. Isn't that scary? If you could bat that well, man, imagine what the angels would pay you. If, if, you, if you hit home runs that often, if you're that, he is an amazing tempter. He can get you to sin. And Jesus knows that. You have the evil one. How does he so successful? How does he do it? He doesn't do it by being obvious. Okay? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, well, honey, I think I'm going to ruin my life spiritually today. You got anything on today? No, I think I'm free. I could do that too. Let's go out and destroy ourselves spiritually. Okay, let's do it. No one does that. Fishing, fishermen know that. You don't put the hook and put it in the water and say, okay, come on. What do you have to do with the hook? You've got to put bait on it. You've got to put a worm on it. Because you want to hide the hook with the bait. The bait looks tempting. Hmm, that looks good. Hmm, ah, I like that. Yeah, that's what we like about temptation. It looks tempting. If it didn't look tempting, it wouldn't be temptation. We love temptation. Oh, temptation is great. A little bit of sin, there's a lure. You know that because, you know, when you buy perfume, what do you buy? Taboo. When you go to the uh, get dessert, what do you get? The sinfully delicious dish. The decadent brownie. Oh. It's decadent. It must be good. It's decadent. We think sin is tasty. Right? We want sin to taste is tasty. Satan does a great job of making sin look tasty. Oh, don't worry about the apple, he says to Adam and Eve. It's, it, it's been nutritionally analyzed. It's got vitamin C, fiber. It's part of the pyramid, you know. Uh, it's good to eat, so go ahead. But God said, oh, you'll better be better off if you sin. Hey, looks good to us. Pleasure, fun to eat. They took a bite. And only then did they feel the hook. Satan is smart. He disguises sin with temptation. So he says, when you pray, you pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. You should be afraid for your soul. 
Because there's an evil one who will tempt you and will disguise and it won't be easy for you to see. Years ago, I realized there is no sin in the world I am not capable of committing. And it scared me to death. Satan can use those things to get me. I am vulnerable, and that keeps me on edge. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't allow him to, to, to take advantage of you. Keep yourself pure. Ask that God will help you. Take that God will lead you away from places of temptation. And you look at our society, and where did everyone go this weekend? Where's the number one destination travel place for 4th of July for L.A.? Vegas. Traffic jams. You think that's a place of temptation? Sin City, it's advertised, it'll stay in Vegas. Let me tell you, it never stays in Vegas. Have you heard of YouTube? It's everywhere. You're gonna, and the sin comes back in with you in the car, and the memories, and the devastation. It's a highway to disaster. We pray, lead me away from it. Don't pray, how close can I come to sin and still be pure? But how holy can I become? Oh, when we pray, we don't just say our prayers. We meaningfully engage with God. We pray, we pray like Jesus. We pray to the Father about the Father. We pray to the Father about our priorities, about our physical needs. We pray to the Father for forgiveness. And we pray to the Father for protection. Welcome to Prayer 101. At the Rock, we recommend you read your Bible every day. I recommend that you pray every day. And I recommend that when you pray, don't do it in public and don't babble. I recommend you use the methodology that Jesus just outlined for us. Because I think he knew a thing or two about prayer. And maybe we can practice. Stand up with me, if you will. And let's read this prayer together. Shall we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Have a great Fourth of July.